0: Well, this is our second message in the series on Paul's epistle to the Romans, and I'm already making changes to the scope of what I had intended to cover on a given Sunday, <clears throat> so I'm following carefully in Bob's footsteps. I uh, originally thought that we'd make it all the way uh, through the rest of chapter 1 this morning, but we're actually going to focus on just three verses, verses 18 to 20, um, I promise I won't cover so few verses for the duration of, <laughs> for all of the, the sessions on Romans. But these are really loaded. This is very foundational stuff. And, uh, and it's important that we get it in order to, to understand where Paul goes through the rest of, of this uh, marvelous epistle. As we saw last week in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, Paul presented the theme of the entire letter. And the, the core theme of this book is that in the gospel of God, which is the good news concerning Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We said that means that at every instance in which a believer exercises faith in God, God declares through that faith his righteousness. Basically, our faith puts God's righteousness on display. But starting in verse 18, Paul shifts gears. Before he will again pick up the theme of the good news, he first has some bad news to set before us, and it's really bad news. It's bad news, though, that we must absolutely reckon with in order to understand the good news and to be saved. And the things that Paul's going to say in verses 18 through 20 actually in one eighteen all the way to 3.20, chapter 3, verse 20, are pretty painful to hear. But they are indispensable to the gospel. And they are indispensable because they explain why it was necessary for Christ to go to the cross. Now, I believe very strongly that unless you buy into Paul's argument between verse one hundred eighteen and 3.20, which is all negative... That you cannot be saved. Paul is about to lay out for us a forceful and compelling argument that every man who has ever lived is in desperate need of a righteousness that can come only from God. And he begins to prove that universal need of all mankind in the verses that we'll look at this morning. And here's where we're going to go. It's actually a fair amount to cover in just three verses. First, God's wrath revealed against men. We'll see that God's wrath is revealed from heaven, that it is directed against our ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then also in verse 18, at the end of the verse, Paul will declare why it is that we deserve God's wrath, and it is because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Then in verses 19 and 20, he'll explain what that truth is that we suppress. He'll explain that it's the truth about God, about his attributes, his power, his nature. And then he'll declare that that truth is evident, that it is clearly seen. It's it's not hidden. And finally, we'll talk about a modern illustration of the kind of truth suppression of which Paul is accusing all mankind in this passage. First, Verse 18, God's wrath revealed against men. In verse 18, Paul presents a summary statement, which is the basis for everything that he's about to say all the way from that verse to chapter 3, verse 20. And in this summary, Paul sets up a little word play to get the reader's attention. The play is on the word revealed. He had just said in verse 17 that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, he says, something else is revealed. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So Paul's argument has moved away from talking about God's righteousness revealed to talking about God's wrath revealed. And he says that that the, the the location, if you will, from which God's wrath is revealed is from heaven. Now, that may seem like something we can just move past quickly, but it's actually a very loaded phrase to say that God's wrath is revealed from heaven. Anyone who's read the story of God's judgment, for instance, against Sodom and Gomorrah, will have a pretty vivid concept of what it means for God's wrath to be revealed from heaven. In Genesis 19, verses 24 and 25, it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, that's, that's an interesting repetition. The verse starts by saying that Yahweh, uh, the Lord, rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then that same verse ends by pointing out, once again, the source of the fire and brimstone. It's from the Lord out of heaven. God did it, of that there was no doubt. But when he did it, nobody even so much as saw him. All they saw was the fire and brimstone that came down out of heaven and toasted everything on the ground. See, the transcendent holiness of God in contrast to man is manifested throughout the Bible in this very simple distinction between God and men. Men dwell on earth God dwells in heaven. In our own sinful state, we cannot be where God is, and we cannot even fully see him. If we did, we would die. The psalmist makes the same connection in Psalm 76, verses 7 and 8. Thou, even thou, art to be feared. Who may stand in thy presence when when once thou art angry? Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. In Exodus chapter 20, the chapter that contains the Ten Commandments, right after God gave the Ten Commandments to the people through Moses, the people cried out and they said to Moses, Please don't let God talk to us anymore from heaven. Because his voice and everything about that whole experience, the fire and smoke on the mountain, the earthquake, the lightning, the thunder, the trumpet blast, everything, was too fearsome for the people of Israel and they didn't want any more of it. So the people asked God to speak to them through Moses instead of directly from his throne in heaven. Now, they could relate to Moses because Moses was a man like they were but they couldn't endure these manifestations of their invisible, all-powerful God. And this reaction by the Israelites is actually used by God in Exodus 20 to make an important point, a very important theological point. Because God says that Israel would be utterly foolish to make idols in the form of any created thing precisely because they could not see the God who was speaking to them. In Exodus 20, verses 22 to 23, The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. By the way, later in Deuteronomy 5, this same point is driven home. that it makes no sense to create an idol in the form of a created image when you cannot see the one who's who that idol whom that idol is supposed to be representing you can't comprehend him when god spoke from heaven his people rightly feared him because while they could see the forceful and undeniable evidence of his hand they could not see him and they could not comprehend him so in romans one eighteen, paul says the wrath of god is revealed from heaven Paul will go on just a few verses later in Romans 1 to talk about the utter foolishness of idolatry, just like Moses did in Exodus 20. So there is a connection here in this idea of God revealing himself from heaven. God's wrath is revealed from heaven, and it is directed against our ungodliness and unrighteousness. So Paul says, that in contrast with what he had said in verse 17 about the gospel demonstrating the righteousness of God, the wrath of God is revealed uh, against our unrighteousness. God is perfectly righteous. Men are woefully unrighteous. And throughout Scripture, the essence of that which provokes God's anger or wrath is our violation of his righteous and holy character. God is holy, we are not. Now, some may look at the wording in verses 18 and 19 of Romans 1 and think that Paul's not talking about all men. He's just talking about some who are really ungodly. But we'll see in the next few weeks that Paul will dispel any such notion. In fact, he'll dispel it pretty quickly in this chapter. Before coming back around to the good news, Paul is going to explain that every man's mouth is closed before God, that we have no defense and we are all helplessly accountable to him precisely because no man is righteous as God measures righteousness. And our unrighteousness brings upon us the wrath of God. Also in verse 18, Paul explains why we deserve God's wrath. What is the nature of our unrighteousness? And he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now I want to first key in on that last little prepositional phrase, in unrighteousness. There is a powerful relationship between what men do with the truth that God has revealed and what kind of people they are. Truth matches up with righteousness and untruth matches up with unrighteousness. In other words, there is a powerful and inevitable relationship between doctrine and morality. Bob was talking about this uh, when we met Wednesday morning. It's a very important point. And the rest of this chapter will proceed to lay out first the failure of men's doctrine, of their belief. And then it's going to lay out the failure of personal morality that characterizes all of fallen mankind and is reflected in their depraved behavior because of what they believe. Untruth always leads to unrighteousness. Now let's talk about what this text means when it says men suppress the truth. This is a central idea here, and it's very important that we get it. We are not merely calloused or unreceptive to the truth of God. In our sinful condition, we suppress the truth of God. The Greek word for suppress actually has the connotation of clinging very tightly to something. It's the same word Paul uses in a positive sense in First Thessalonians 5.21 when he tells the Thessalonian believers to hold fast to that which is good. He's going to go on to say in the following verses in Romans 1 that God has made certain things known about himself, universally to all men. But here in verse 18, he declares that men not only do not accept that truth that God has made known, they actively hold it back. (laughs) Instead of men laying hold of the glorious truth about God in order to submit ourselves to that truth, we gang tackle the truth in order to suppress it, to keep it from seeing the light of day. We don't just reject the truth, we systematically do battle against the truth. And you don't have to look very far to see this mindset in action. We'll talk a lot about that at the end of this message. In verses 19 and 20, Paul then goes on to explain what he means by this indictment of mankind in that he tells us what is this truth that men suppress so vigorously. He says, the wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he says, because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, men, are without excuse. All right, let's break that down. He said, the truth that we suppress is that which is known about God. And by the way, when the Bible talks about truth, that's always what it means. The world has this, that we throw the word truth around and make it, meaningless and trivial. The only truth that God acknowledges is is the truth about him. He says this truth has been made known, Paul says, since the creation of the world. It's not new information. And he says it's the truth concerning God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. (laughs) Now this is not the kind of thing that men might reasonably attribute to, to that Impersonal fictitious entity known as Mother Nature. He's talking about things in nature that manifest the very character of our God. Our infinite, personal, sovereign, almighty God. Things that actually explain to us a lot about who God is. And he says that these truths about God are understood through what has been made, through creation. His truth is manifested in creation. This is actually a very common theme throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 19, David declares that nature loudly and continually proclaims the glory and the knowledge of God day and night. He says the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. It's not quiet. And night to night reveals knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of the glory of God. Psalm 104 has a whole lot to say about this. Verses 1 through 7 speak of the splendor and the majesty of God revealed in nature. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, Thou art very great. Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty. And then look at the parts of creation that are singled out. By the way, Al's song this morning, hymn this morning, was absolutely on point. <laughs> Light. Heaven, the waters, the clouds, the wind, flaming fire, the earth, the deep, the waters, the mountains, thunder, (laughs) all of it, he says, proclaim the splendor and majesty of God. Verses 24 to 30 of this same Psalm speak of the wisdom of God revealed in creation. O Lord, how many are thy works? In wisdom thou hast made them all, the earth, The sea, swarms without number, animals, small and great. (laughs) The ships, I love that, I love that. The ships. He's even saying things that are made by men declare the wisdom of God. The ships that move along on the sea. Leviathan. Uh, The fact that God gives food in due season to all of his creatures. God's word has a whole lot to say about how his creation reveals to us all manner of things about his character and his nature. By the way, Bob Deffenbaugh has a comprehensive and, to my mind, beautifully written article on that very topic on Bible.org. It's entitled Nature's Part in God's Perfect Plan, and I recommend that you uh, check it out. Now, here's the real kicker in verses 19 and 20 of Romans 1. Paul says that these truths about God that are revealed in nature are not hard to find. He says they are clearly seen through what has been made. Look at the green, uh, the, the green highlighting up here. He says that which is known about God is evident within men for God made it evident to them. He's saying in no uncertain terms that the truth about God is not hard to find. And by the way, It's evident within men because God made it evident to them. In other words, the truth about God has been so compellingly and persuasively presented on the outside that it is also evident to men on the inside, to men's minds and hearts. Evident is the operative word here. In Acts chapter 4, we get a vivid look at the meaning of this word in a context and flip over to that. In the context, it's very much in keeping with Paul's point here in Romans. But in Acts chapter 4, those who are suppressing the truth have even more than the testimony of creation, much more. In this passage, Peter and John had just been arrested by the captain of the temple guard in Jerusalem after they had proclaimed the gospel and seen about 5,000 people come to faith. Annas, the current high priest... And a group of his cronies, other Jewish rulers who were of high priestly descent, began questioning Peter and John. But these two disciples of Jesus stood their ground without flinching. In fact, it's in this, in this rebuttal to their questions that Peter says to the Jewish authorities regarding Jesus Christ, There is salvation in no one, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. So he's not pulling his punches here. According to verse 13, these powerful Jewish leaders were marveling after listening to the fearless and confident declaration made by Peter. And along with the words of Peter, they actually also had the evidence of a very visible miracle standing right in front of them. They had just seen a man who had been lame from birth Lame for over 40 years, healed through Peter at the temple gate called the the beautiful gate. And upon healing, uh, upon being healed, the man had been leaping around and praising God for everyone to see. And, And it caused quite a, quite an uproar. Everybody was talking about it. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, They were marveling and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. (laughs) And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. (laughs) Verse 14 says, they didn't have any response. So after sending Peter and John outside the room where they had gathered, the Jewish leaders began to talk among themselves. And in verse 16, they said, what shall we do with these men? For the fact, the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. The word apparent here is the same root word that Paul uses twice in Romans one nineteen when he says, that which is known about God is evident within men, for God made it evident to them. Apparent, obvious, evident. The Jewish leaders realized that the legitimacy of what Peter and John were preaching about Christ was obvious, that it was clearly evident, both through the eloquence and persuasiveness of these uneducated men who were preaching it, and through the miraculous healing of a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. So they said to themselves, we cannot deny it. But deny it they did. In the very next verse, the Jewish leaders said, In order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Of course, they didn't get much traction with that idea uh, with these two guys, John and Peter. (laughs) But they tried. And if their actions at this point seem a little tame, they became anything but tame as the disciples continued to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and people continued to be saved. The Jewish authorities saw the evidence of the truth about Christ that Peter and John were proclaiming and they acknowledged with their own lips that the miraculous attestation God had given to those words of Peter and John was clear. It was undeniable. Then in the blink of an eye, they proceeded to actively, systematically, strategically hold it down so that it would not see the light of day. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They were very practiced at suppressing truth. Just a little while before this, after the resurrection of Jesus, some of the guys from this same group of Jewish leaders had paid off the Roman soldiers who had been guarding the tomb of Christ so that the soldiers would tell everyone that the disciples of Jesus had come and taken the body of Jesus away from the tomb while they were asleep. Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Now, I guess they hadn't thought much about how unpersuasive it is to give an eyewitness report about something that happened while you were asleep. Long after the first coming of Jesus, indeed, ever since the fall, excuse me, long before the first coming of Jesus, ever since the fall of Adam, men have been suppressing the truth that God has made undeniable. Now, I want to, uh, take some time to talk about an illustration. <laughs> and I'm not generally very keen on illustrations that aren't from scripture itself, but I believe God gives us permission to look at this kind of illustration because He says that nature declares His handiwork, that nature declares His invisible nature, His eternal power, and His divine, uh, His Yeah, (laughs) invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature. For me, this is a powerful illustration not only because it demonstrates the heart of man's suppression of the truth, it also demonstrates how the advances in man's knowledge of God's creation over time should have made man more receptive to the truth instead of less receptive. And yet the opposite is actually what has happened. There's a very widespread belief among the educational establishment in the Western world to the effect that the more we learn about nature through science, the more certain we become that we can dispense with any notion of a creator, especially any notion that the God of the Bible created the things that we see around us. The assertion of the scientific community, by and large, is that the evidence we find in nature contradicts what the Bible says about God. But is that actually how it works? Or is there a bias operating here? Now, I'm going to put a couple of pictures on the screen. The first is a graphic of the parts in a fairly typical electric motor. This is just a bare motor. It's not connected to anything. You could connect the drive shaft of this motor to any one of several different kinds of drive mechanisms, like a propeller, a pump impeller or an axle. The second picture is also of a motor, but of a very different kind. This is a rendering of something called a bacterial flagellum. And if you know the controversy surrounding this little guy, don't worry. I'm not planning to try to hash out the elaborate arguments between the evolutionists and the intelligent design folks about irreducible complexity and all that, even though I've studied those arguments in considerable detail. I'm going to keep this very simple because I strongly believe that it is at the simplest and most foundational level that this argument about intelligence is settled. This that you see up here is the biochemical motor that drives a microscopically fine hair-like propeller to give locomotion to a single-celled bacterium like E. coli. E. coli are among billions of digested bacteria that live in our bodies to help us process the food we eat. And no, that's wrong. It's trillions. This motor isn't made up of cells. Those aren't cells you're looking at. It's part of a single-celled organism. It's made up of over 40 different kinds of proteins, and its entire structure is defined at the molecular level. This tiny structure has all of the key components that you find in an electric motor created by men. It has a stator, an outer ring that doesn't move, but that generates a a circular flow of protons to turn the inner core of the motor, which is called the rotor. It has a drive shaft to transfer the motion of the rotor to the propeller. It has bushings to make sure that that drive shaft rotates smoothly and doesn't wobble around. And it has a propeller. The diameter of this little motor is about 20 to 40 nanometers. A nanometer is one millionth of a millimeter, and a millimeter is about that big. So we're talking really small here. I pull out a hair. I got a little bit of one. You all see that? (laughs) Of course you don't. Mine are getting skinnier by the year. A human hair is about a 100,000 nanometers in width. So you could put a few thousand of these little motors into a space equal to the cross-section of one human hair. Now, the second motor, the one that occurs in nature, that man had nothing to do with, is actually a good bit more sophisticated than the first one, the one that men made. This tiny motor operates at something in excess of 10,000 RPM, and it can reverse direction in a quarter turn, in a fraction of a second, to enable the bacteria to move around quickly and with great agility. The direction switching of this motor is governed by changes to proteins at the molecular level in response to the presence of food chemicals like sugars that exist in the digestive tract. In other words... The single-celled digestive bacteria are able to seek out and move toward nutrients that they exist to digest. And the way they move is by means of this little motor and propeller. Scientists have been studying this motor for almost 40 years, since 1973. And there's a lot about it they still don't have a clue about. In 2003, a molecular biologist at Harvard named Howard Berg published an article titled The Rotary Motor of Bacterial Flagella, in which he said the following, we know a great deal about the structure of the flagellar motor, but not very much at the atomic level, the atomic resolution. We know a great deal about the motor function, about the fuel that powers the motor, which is actually acid that's secreted by the bacterium itself about the torque that it can generate at different speeds and what controls the likelihood that it changes direction. However, we do not know how the motor actually works. That is, the details of what makes it go <laughs> or how it to, manages to shift abruptly from forward counterclockwise rotation to reverse clockwise rotation. But then the, the rider adds this confident assertion. The flagellar motor is the output organelle of a remarkable sensory system, the components of which have been honed to perfection by billions of years of evolution. That article was written 10 years ago. So after the first 30 years of the 40 years that scientists have been studying this motor, they were still in the dark about what makes it run or how it manages to change directions. In just the last few years, further research found that it actually uses a very responsive biochemical clutch to ensure that when it changes directions at such fast rotation speeds, it doesn't shear off the propeller. But they still don't know with any precision how it works. And they're nowhere close to being able to reproduce it, even with 40 years of painstaking reverse engineering by some of the finest scientists in the realm of biochemical research. But what they do know with great certainty is that it is the product of billions of years of evolution and definitely not the product of any kind of intelligence, right? Now, all, of the, all that we've talked about doesn't even scratch the surface of the thousands of pages of rigorous and esoteric scientific detail that has been written about this little motor by scores of scientists who are all infinitely smarter than I am. And there's been a very long and very convoluted debate between the two parties that's even shown up in courts. On the one hand, you have the neo-Darwinists who say this motor is the product of time, chance, mutation, natural selection, plus some as yet not so well-defined forces in nature that help propel the evolutionary process in such a way that you can end up with complex systems like this. On the other hand, you have the intelligent design proponents who say that something like this little motor could never have come into being without the involvement of intelligence. Here's my take on it. And, And actually, some people from both sides of the controversy would consider me to be oversimplifying the argument unforgivably. That's okay with me. See, if I'm faced with two options for explaining something I encounter in the world, one that complies with Scripture experience and common sense, and the other that complies with none of the above. I'm going to take the first one every time. If I found one of these anywhere in the world in any physical context, I'd immediately assume it was the product of intelligence in both design and manufacture. All of my nearly 56 years of experience lead me to that simple conclusion, and I would be exactly right. Now, thanks to the great sophistication of modern science in observing God's nature, God's creation, I've encountered this little motor. On what basis would I possibly come to a different conclusion about the intelligent origin of this one than I came to about the first one? Now, I know that men didn't make this one because after 40 years of study, building on many generations of knowledge about biology, chemistry, and physics, men don't have a clue how to make one of these. But is there anything at all about this motor other than the fact that men didn't make it that should lead me to believe that intelligence isn't the causal factor in its design and manufacture? Anything? And then there's the miniaturization issue. Here's a picture of an IBM 650 computer from the 1950s. It required a large room to hold it. Yeah, it's laughable these days, right? That middle part, the CPU, by the way, a man could stand up against that and and it would go up considerably higher than his head. The CPU weighed slightly less than 2,000 pounds. You notice the little shelf. There's no keyboard on that shelf. That's because the input mechanism is a punch card reader. Well, the punch card reader right beside it, and by the way, those were still around when I was in college. I had to make punch cards and stand behind the graduate students while they fed in their cartloads of them, you know. Anyway, the punch card reader weighed 1,300 pounds. This computer, the whole schmear, processed a whopping 1,000 instructions per second. This next picture is the same thing as this. It's my MacBook Air. It weighs about three pounds, a little less. Data is inputted via these little things called keys. And this process is 53 billion instructions per second. Now, which of these two is the most sophisticated? Which requires the higher level of knowledge to produce? You see, making really small things perform complex functions that bigger things can perform is called miniaturization. And the reality is that going from big to really, really small or going from big to really, really big requires more knowledge than the original moderately sized version of the same device that performs the same function. In the applied sciences, the super small versions of complex things created by men always, come after the moderately sized versions. So if, through the relatively new field of endeavor known as nanoscience, man ever manages to create a motor that is as small (laughs) as the one that already exists in trillions of various forms of digestive bacteria in every one of your bodies, and that works with the level of sophistication that that motor works, it'll be the result of decades or perhaps centuries of scientific inquiry with each generation building upon the knowledge of the previous generation. But here's the punchline. This MacBook right here is much newer... Hang on, get my pictures right. It's much newer than this IBM 650. But this bacterial flagellum is much, much, much older than this electric motor. Who's the genius here, guys? Romans one twenty, Paul says... Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that men are without excuse. When I look at this amazing little mechanism or at any of a myriad of of other amazing things that I can actually see without an electron microscope, my spirit cries out to God's creation itself and says, Preach it. This screams out to me that the intellect, the divine genius of our God, shows us to be nothing but rank amateurs when it comes to designing and creating. And by the way, the supernatural intellect, the divine genius of God, isn't something you can touch or directly see. So it seems to me it fits into Paul's category of invisible attributes. Even though we can't get our hands around it, The brilliance of the mind of God is stamped on every atom of every created thing that we see and of every created thing that we can't see because we're not smart enough to see it yet. The declaration of his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly manifested for all to see, being understood through what has been made. So why is it that men of much higher intellect than I can study something like this motor for 40 years, discovering greater and greater complexity and beauty in it the longer they look at it, and see zero evidence of God or even of intelligence? Paul already answered the question. Men suppress the truth. They systematically rule out any possibility of acknowledging God for one simple reason, because they do not want to submit to God. But Paul says at the end of Romans 1.20 that that doesn't work out so well for mankind. He says that because we have suppressed the truth that God has made so clearly evident, we are left without excuse. And he'll go on to make it clear that this suppression of the truth of God darkens the hearts of men and leads to all manner of depraved, sinful behavior, every instance of which condemns us in the eyes of a holy God. Now, lest we Christians pat ourselves on the back and say we could never be so blind, we need to realize that apart from the grace of God, we'd still be right there with the geniuses who see no intelligence in nature. Paul's indictment in Romans 1 applies to us all. If you don't think that's where Paul's going with this, then stay tuned until we get to chapter 3. (laughs) He'll leave no doubt. Professing to be wise, we'll see next week, all men became fools and exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, how is it that men's eyes get opened to that which is clearly evident about God when they start out so blind? God has to open them. In John 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What about us whose eyes have been opened by the grace and the mercy of our God? What about us who are the redeemed of God and who believe the testimony of his word? and who are already convinced that everything that exists was created by him. Does any of what Paul is saying here apply to us? (laughs) Let's think about that for a moment. The failure that Paul is talking about here is a failure to respond rightly to the revelation that God has made concerning who he is and what he has done. What has God made known of himself to you? And what do you do each day with that revelation? My brother John Marr challenged my thinking on this point Wednesday, and I'm and i thankful that he did. What has God made known to you of his invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature? When Jesus was here the first time, he repeatedly said to those who asked him about God the Father, you want to know the Father? Look at me. You and I have the entirety of God's revelation of himself through the law of Moses, through the Old Testament prophets, but way beyond that, we had the revelation of God through his Son, Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. In him, we have the personal and crystal clear testimony regarding God's character. His holiness, his hatred of sin, his justness, his power, his love, his grace his mercy, his steadfast covenant faithfulness, even regarding the eternal benefits that he bestows upon us through the things that we find hardest to endure. Paul says the correct response to, to his revelation, even just his revelation of himself in nature, is that men should honor him as God and give thanks in Romans one we We'll look at that next week. So is that what we do? with the amazing revelation that God has given us concerning himself? Do we live lives that are characterized by gratitude to him for who he is and for the eternal benefits that he has bestowed upon us and upon his people throughout all the ages? Do we trust in his promises in a way that this knowledge demands? Or do we do as the world does? Do we indulge our own foolish speculations and exchange the truth of God for a lie? (laughs) You know what? Every time we sin, we do the latter. Sin is a denial of God's own person and work, both of which he has clearly put on display for us to behold every moment of every day. And he's put it on display for us as believers more clearly than for anybody, right? And we have the Holy Spirit bearing witness to it constantly. When we go through our days in anxiety or depression or despair, we are denying the truth of God that has been set before us as believers more clearly than before anyone else. When we decide to structure our lives on our terms rather than God's, to go after things that we think we need rather than the things that he says we need, or to go after things that he forbids to those whom he loves and calls his own, then we are not thankfully honoring him as God, as his ever-present revelation of himself compels us to do. We are denying the truth of God and replacing it with a lie. Right? Isn't that what we're doing? May we who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ respond to all that God has shown us and told us about himself by gratefully submitting to him so that he may display his character and his righteousness through us to others. Are you a suppressor of the truth or a willing participant in the ongoing display of God's attributes, power, and character moment by moment we have to choose to be one or the other father your works declare your character you haven't left us to guess lord <laughs> Your revelation goes way beyond what you show us in creation, but creation even in itself is enough to condemn us because of the response that we fail to have toward it. And Lord, you've revealed so much more to us through the person of Jesus Christ, even through your word. Lord, we're humbled when we look at at your indictment of mankind in this passage. Because we've taken that which you have revealed, Lord, and we have preferred a lie. And yet, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our rebellion against you. And then you work by your Spirit to convict and convince us that we are lost and dead in our sins that we cannot bring about a righteousness in ourselves that meets your standard. And we are utterly dependent upon you to save us. And then save us you do. Through the work of your Son on the cross, the one perfect sacrifice. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus as his or her Savior, I pray that you would pierce that person's heart and cause him to see that this indictment applies to him and that he would trust you and you alone believe in your son Lord I pray for us who are your children that we would uh, we would not pursue lies but we would cling to the truth in order to submit to it and that you would display your righteousness through our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.